microphone battery might be acceptable. What about the pastor battery? Is that <laughs> does that run low? Do we have a monitor for that? Is that all right? According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here once again for the purpose of growth. Turn to Mark chapter 6. There are parallel accounts in Luke 9 and Matthew 14, but the fullest account, the most detailed and descriptive, is in Mark chapter 6. And we're using Mark as the base text for the outline and then bringing in additional scriptures as appropriate. Almost got through the end of the outline. We were dealing with the flashback and the details of uh, the Baptist beheading. Before we begin this morning, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each one of us is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for the truth of your word, for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together and to receive instruction. Father, we thank you for the uh, freedom that our nation still possesses that allows for a, a local church to operate in a, in a public building with a sign out front. Father, uh, we were able to teach the word without fear of government uh, interference or uh, being arrested or taken away. Father, we uh, ask this morning as we study that you would open the eyes of our understanding, in particular when we examine differences between Old Testament prophets and their ministry and, and our own ministry today. Father, uh, make it very clear to us what is appropriate, what is applicable, what our spiritual responsibilities are in our current stewardship. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in the outline of this point, we've uh, gotten through two points of study and uh, left off with the third. The Synoptic Gospels all record Herod's fear as a flashback to his execution of John the Baptist. What these Gospels are recording actually is Herod's fear that uh, the reputation of Jesus Christ is growing, that uh, he's sending out his disciples. And so now, rather than just simply one touring ministry around the regions of Galilee, there are now these six additional teams uh, going around two by two. Plus, of course, Jesus continues his ministry. So now instead of one traveling preaching uh, engagement, there are now seven that are, that are blanketing uh, the Galilean region. And Herod, of course, is... Uh, concerned about that. He is the Tetrarch of Galilee. That is his region that he rules on behalf of the Romans. And uh, so by virtue of these miracles taking place, the teaching going on, the crowds that are gathering and so forth, John, uh, Herod can only conclude that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And we read that in Mark 6.14. King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these uh, miraculous powers are at work in him. So this was his fear. Actually, there were a number of rumors that we studied under point two. Um, in the process of this episode, this episode actually centers on Herod's fear, but in order to communicate that fear, it has to do a flashback and remind you of, of something that was not actually recorded for us at the time that it happened. And that was the, uh, the uh, execution of John the Baptist. And that's what's spelled out here. In the subpoints, we gave you the characters involved, Herod the Tetrarch. We gave you under subpoint A, 
Don't confuse Herod the Tetrarch with King Herod, uh, the Herod that massacred the babies, uh, the King Herod, Herod the Great, where the Magi came to him and, and so forth. He is the son of Herod the Great, Herod, uh, also known as Herod Antipas. Under point B, we uh, pointed out who Philip is, Herod Philip. He uh, did not rule. He uh, was a private citizen living in Rome. Uh, another son of Herod the Great made him a half-brother of, of uh, Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. And uh, so don't confuse him also with another Philip, another Herod Philip, who we call Philip the Tetrarch, who uh, is featured later in the Gospels and in the, uh, in the book of Acts. The third character in this drama is Herodias, who is a half-sister of all these Herods we're talking about. Uh, Herodias is the feminine form of Herod, and uh, she was the daughter of Aristobulus. I'm sorry, that makes her a granddaughter of Herod the Great. Aristobulus would be a half-brother of these other folks we're talking about, a half-brother of Herod Antipas, half-brother of Herod Philip, half-brother of the other Herod Philip. And uh, she then is the one that uh, takes center stage in this episode because Herod will, uh, she will divorce Philip in order to marry Herod, and that becomes the subject for John the Baptist preaching. And then her daughter then is Salome, or Salome, different pronunciations for her name, Salome, daughter of uh, Herod Philip of Rome and Herodias, and she's the one that dances in this chapter. Later on, she will go to marry the other Philip, Philip the Tetrarch. Diagram, you really need a scorecard to keep your Herod straight. It's almost like the, as confusing as uh, other families where you've got cousins and marriages and, and remarriages that makes things even more complicated when there have been former marriages and then remarriages and and different things or if you end up with two brothers that marry two sisters and so yeah i think shirley knows how that works and there's more uh, family links that way by virtue of the the double connection between families and situations like that we did point out though that by virtue of marrying herodias he's marrying the daughter of his sister that makes uh, that means he's marrying his niece, right? When Herod, when Herod uh, the Tetrarch here marries Herodias, he's marrying his niece, and so then his uh, her daughter then is his great niece. I guess how that would work, or step niece maybe. Anyway, and then she ends up marrying her great uncle, so Salome will become her mother's aunt at this point, <laughs> and. It's like a regular soap opera, as it were. I don't think Knott's Landing or Dynasty or some of these other shows. <clears throat> I'm dating myself. I don't watch TV. But back in the 80s, anyway, it was Knott's Landing and Falcon Crest and Dynasty and all the, the great primetime shows from uh, my childhood that I didn't watch then either because it was uh, I had better things to do in my teenage years. Anyway, the soap opera back then was far beyond anything they could dream up today. Under point two, we observe the growing public rumors, that the uh, growing public acclaim for Jesus was sparking rumors. The first one was that uh, John the Baptist had returned, and that's the rumor that uh, Herod immediately latches on to. The second rumor was that Elijah had arrived. Remember, uh, the great expectation was, was that Elijah is going to arrive, that Elijah would be, uh, and he's promised to come in Malachi, that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that he would come as a forerunner, he would come as a herald. And uh, so when, when Christ was ministering, there, this was the great rumor. It was also a rumor when John the Baptist was ministering. They had to send messengers out to John the Baptist to say, are you Elijah? 
you know, you're this this kind of hairy guy dressed kind of weird, and you live out here in the in the boonies, and you eat locusts and wild honey, and kind of seems like Elijah to us. Are you Elijah? And he says, No, I'm not Elijah. But in a way, he was because he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was the forerunner of the first advent of Jesus Christ, and uh, Jesus will later on say, If you care to accept it, he is the uh, Elijah who is to come. Rumor number three is that uh, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. He is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Or rumor number four, he actually is one of the prophets of old uh, that has returned. It's not John the Baptist come back to life, but it's Isaiah come back to life, or Jeremiah come back to life, or one of the prophets of old come back to life. Uh, Not necessarily Elijah, but one of the other prophets. Well, Herod, his guilt over-executing John leads him to immediately insist upon rumor number one. That's what he's convinced of, is that he put uh, John the Baptist to death, and now John's coming back to haunt him. Remember, if, if, you're, if you're approaching life on the cosmos world system basis, then your entire universe revolves around you. And Herod cannot conceive of any possibility that doesn't relate to him. And so since he put... John the Baptist to death, that's the one he's concerned about, that's the one that he's oriented to, uh, this must be what's going on, and uh, and now John has returned to haunt him, and it's all about him, and, and how much he's going to suffer now, how much he's going to uh, be punished for what he's done. So the classic cosmos wisdom that unbelievers, and sadly carnal believers, will get caught up into. When you think about that. All right. Then finally, then under point three, the flashback, we get the details of the execution. And this is kind of spelled out. We recognize that John the Baptist had made public proclamation against Herod's marriage to Herodias. And that's spelled out for us in Matthew 14.4, but we also read in Mark 6.18. So let me read that. Uh, Verse 17 says, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. And if you really want all the sordid details, uh, Josephus records them. It was during a time when uh, Herod himself was uh, spending some time in Rome uh, trying to secure his own tetrarchy, trying to secure his own position there amongst the Romans. And uh, during that time in Rome uh, is when they had their affair, their uh, adultery, uh, and uh, he convinced her that that, uh, she needed to divorce Philip in order to marry him. And uh, she convinced him that she would do so only if he divorced the wife that he already had at that point of time. I think Herod was probably willing to become a polygamist at that point. Um, Like his father, Herod the Great was a polygamist. He didn't bother divorcing former wives in order to marry additional wives. Um, But... uh, Herodias wasn't going to have any part of that. She told him that if, if that she was you know, willing to partake in the adultery and willing to marry him and willing to divorce Philip and all the rest, but if she was going to have to divorce Philip, then she insisted that he divorce uh, the, the Arabian princess that he'd previously been married to. He'd been married to a daughter of, uh, I gave this to you last week, Aretas IV, king of Nabatea, married her, prin- uh, her daughter, divorced her in order to marry Herodias. Anyway, because of that, um, John, in verse 18, that's the Baptist, had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the imperfect tense of the verb, had been saying, demonstrates that this was a prolonged series of messages over a period of time. We don't know how long, 
but the imperfect tense speaks of a continuous action in past time. John had been in the habit of saying. John had been uh, regularly, repeatedly saying to Herod, not just in his public classes, not just about Herod, but actually to Herod on Whatever uh, frequency that was, if that was every morning when Herod held court, if it was once a week, if it was every Sabbath, if it was every, uh, you know, new moon or whatever uh, regularity it was, there was a there was a consistency to it where John the Baptist would come and in Herod's presence, in Herod's court, would say it is not lawful. It is not lawful. Now that in itself, you would think, is fairly tame. You know, he's not saying, uh, you know, you, you know, slamming a Bible around, thumping a Bible, stomping a foot. You know, you, you fornicator, you're going to burn in hell and all of that. He's just simply saying it is not lawful. There is a standard of God's word and you are in violation of that standard. But the phrase, it is not lawful. Remember the age in which this takes place, the age of law. This is taking place in the Old Testament economy while uh, the nation of Israel is accountable to obey the structures of Mosaic law. Now, this is something that sparks a lot of activism in our culture, and I started to address this last week. People with a crusader mentality to their Christianity will utilize this and other uh, type concepts to say, you know what, we need to speak out. We, uh, we must speak out. We um, and, and notice the fine line there. Notice the, I think it's a slippery slope from we can speak out to we should speak out to we must speak out. There's a, there's a slippery slope with respect to that. And then the slippery slope also comes in defining we. What do you mean by we? <laughs> Got a mouse in your pocket? When you, know, when you say we... We need to speak out. Well, are you saying we as believer priests in the dispensation of the church? Are you saying we as born-again believers, as individuals, or we as, a, as the church universal? We as a local church? Is it a local church function to march for causes and crusade and, and uh, protest uh, political offices and... and, and uh, um, you know, uh, boycott certain products and, and, and so forth? Is that a local church function? Is that an individual function? How do you define we at that point? And what is the New Testament authority for doing that? The New Testament dispensation authority for doing that? Uh, you can point to Mark all you like. That's not New Testament. That is an Old Testament prophet speaking to a king of a theocratic nation. Prophets of Israel were specifically accountable to the Lord for the rebuke of kings in his earthly theocracy. Israel was an earthly theocracy. Kings had to answer to prophets. And this is where we ran out of time, and I promise that we come right back to it. We spent time last week in 1 Samuel 15, and that dealt with Samuel rebuking Saul. Prophets of Israel were specifically accountable to the Lord. The Lord would go to a prophet and say, go speak to that king. Go speak to that king. Now, do we have such a thing today? Do we, do we function in a theocracy today? Are there church age prophets today 
that are being commanded by God to go and, and rebuke a king? No. Even when we had prophets in the dispensation of the church, the early, the apostolic age of the church, there were legitimate prophets, but guess what? They then took second uh, position to the apostles. Apostles and prophets. And they weren't charged to rebuke any king. They were told that they would be witnesses in front of kings. Hopefully we can start to observe some distinctions here. Also, the unique nature of Israel as a covenant nation. The United States is not Israel. No Gentile nation today can make that claim. Even a nation that's majority. See, I think Pastor Theme broke down uh, brilliantly when he distinguished between a covenant nation and a client nation. The difference between the, the theocracy covenant nation of Israel by covenant as an earthly nation is unique. Now, if a Gentile nation has a majority of believers or a high percentage of believers, probably not a majority, but a significant minority of believers that can be a salt and light preservative benefit, blessing by association upon their nation, that's wonderful. We've got examples of that in the, in the Old Testament. But the idea of, of political activism trying to make Old Testament application to validate what they're doing doesn't stand the hermeneutical test. It doesn't stand what these scriptures will support. So let's look at another couple of examples here. And you should have a sense for this. So let's get back to 2 Samuel now. We did 1 Samuel last week. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. See, and there were multiple examples of this. And this is why I think it's consistent and, and beneficial to see not just Samuel with Saul. But let's see some others as well. Chapter 7 and verse 5. And I, I like the example of chapter 7 because things are going well in chapter 7. It's not a problem. It's not always just prophets showing up when things are bad. Prophets are always on hand, even when things are good, for uh, consulting the will of God and, and so forth. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. All right, the first thing we observe in this conversation is that David and Nathan are uh, uh, intimate. They are on speaking terms with each other. They have a familiarity with each other. David is in the kingly office. Nathan is in the pro uh, prophetic office. You imagine they had some tremendous fellowship together in the word of God. David prophesied himself. David was a prophet by gift, but not by office. He was a king by office. And uh, here's Nathan, the prophet. And uh, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. They have an intimacy with each other, and they have an intimacy with Jehovah, an intimacy with the Lord. See, it doesn't cross Nathan's mind to say, wait a minute, David. Let me go inquire of the Lord for you to see if this is right. He doesn't have to. Nathan and David are so intimate with each other and so intimate with the Lord. The Lord is with you, recognizing that, that you have an intimate walk with Jesus Christ and an intimate prayer life with the Lord. If this is a desire that you have to, to glorify him, to please him, to bear fruit, to do something wonderful, then, uh, then do it. See, this is a, a wonderful provision for divine guidance that you and I, in if, 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 this is our, if this describes our walk, if this describes our walk, if, if we are consistently uh, in the Word, if we are consistently occupied with Christ, if we are consistently prayerful over everything that we do, 
then, and, and, and we have an idea, we have a thought, we have a realm that we want to uh, pursue. Well, where do you think that, that idea came from? Where did that, that, how did that pop into our mind? How did that desire, where did the seed of that desire grow from? Say, if indeed we are growing and he's molding us and he's fashioning us, we can trust those impulses, those instincts, say. And if we're wrong, we can also trust that he will be faithful to show us, nope, stop there, put the brakes on it, wait a minute. Okay, which is exactly what's happening in this chapter here. Now, I, I, I teach this with some caution because there's an awful lot of, of, of preparation that goes into that from occupying with Christ, living in the word, consistent prayers. Uh, You've got to really be able to declare the Lord is with you as an intimate walk. You're walking with him. He's walking with you. Okay, because if a believer is not in that condition. Uh, telling them, oh, just go with your impulses. <laughs> That's dangerous. All right? You got an immature believer and you tell them to go with your impulses? Or you got an adolescent believer? You got a teenager? You think in our teen class we're telling our teenagers, go with your impulses? All right? You know, we've got a, there's a, there's a, you got to get to that stage. That's, that's the mark of a mature believer at that point. See? But it does not, in verse 3, it does not dawn on Nathan to, uh, and, and first of all, David's not even asking permission. David's said, I got an idea. This is what I'm observing. This is a need, and I want to I meet that need. And, and Nathan doesn't say, well, wait a minute, let me inquire of the Lord to get permission for you. All right. He just says, go, do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant, David, this is very important because this is what would happen with Old Testament prophets. The word of the Lord came. That's formulaic for divine inspiration, for revelation taking place, putting a putting an obligation on in the in the mind of, of his prophets to go and address the king. We don't have that today. People that take it upon themselves, ooh, I'm going to go and rebuke the president. Who appointed you? You know, because the Lord didn't appoint you. <laughs> I had a lady call me and she told me that's her gift. That's her calling. She says, the Lord uses me to go into churches and to rebuke pastors. She's never been here. And I say, well, you don't need to visit Austin Bible Church then because the Lord has not called you so far as that goes. She says, and then she went on to say, well, you know, she's not very popular. She doesn't stay long in, in many churches. I told her, I said, I could tell you why. Now, we get all kinds of interesting phone calls. Here's a prophet who, though, is sent from the Lord to rebuke the king. And it's a rebuke, not because the king is doing anything wrong, but because David doesn't have all the information. David does not know that in the predetermined plan of God from eternity past, Solomon would be the one designated to build that temple. So is that David's fault for not being omniscient and clued into the divine decrees? No. He has a legitimate desire, and it's, it's spoken of as a right desire. So go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? I never asked for that. 
in verse 6, For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Anyway, he never asked for this. But, and then it goes on, uh, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Now notice this is all future, all in the language of I will. Even though it's in the past from verse 1 that he has already given David rest on every side from all of his enemies. So David's at rest, Israel's at rest, but there's still a future at rest that's in view. In any event, he says... uh, The Lord will make a house for you, and when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, verse 12, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so this promise, you're not going to build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men, sons of men. But I, my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's the word. And a prophet was sent to speak that word to the king. And this is such total grace. Because if God wanted to, he could say, oh, and by the way... The son that I'm going to lift up after you is going to build a temple. And David's thinking, great, this is wonderful. I love David's response here. David said, who am I? He falls to the ground and he worships. He says, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And he just worships. He says, this is great. My son's going to do this. And, you know, you and I might get, you know, we, we might pout and say, you know, I wanted to do this. And God said, no, well, I'll show him, you know, who does he think he is? And. I, you know, fine, if I can't do that, I won't do anything, right? And we get all mopey and selfish and whatever. David doesn't do any of that. David's just so thankful. He's not allowed to build it? Okay, can't build it? Great, I'll finance it. I'll, I'll fund the whole thing. I'll, I'll put the money in savings. I'll buy all the materials. We'll get all the building materials ready to go. Everything, I mean, all Solomon had to do basically was become king and then say, make it so, get it done. Because David already assembled all the craftsmen, all the, all the, the materials, all the funding. So David had a real great attitude here. Now, he has this wonderful attitude with respect to it and and no idea. And and the Lord doesn't say, by the way, that uh, the son that's going to be born, who's going to build this temple, is uh, one that's going to be born because you're going to commit adultery and you're going to murder one of your soldiers uh, on the battlefield and you're going to take his wife. And that first kid's going to die, but then the second kid's going to be born. Uh, That's the one that's going to become Solomon. Okay? This is all long before Bathsheba. And there's the promises, see. And, and did, did these promises get thwarted because of the adultery, because of the murder, because of David's failure? Absolutely not. The, the language here is the covenant language of I will. And the covenant language of I will is unconditional covenant. And it doesn't matter David's failures, doesn't matter David's sin, the adultery, the murder, any of that. God made unconditional promises. And at the birth of Solomon, there's the son. And he did indeed build the build the temple so you know this uh this addresses so many different areas and so many different issues people that think that god can just scrap his plan for israel is insane because um 
that whole idea is insane. If if this chapter doesn't teach us that, I don't know how how much more plain we can make things. All right, back to chapter 12 then. So that was a good a good circumstance. David was doing everything right. Here's a prophet. Send the, send the prophet to the king. Let him know, you know, great idea, just bad timing. Now in chapter 12, same prophet. Bad circumstance. And we're familiar with this. This is the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Jehovah's doing the sending, sending a prophet of Jehovah to the king of the covenant nation. And uh, gives him the parable. David gets mad. Nathan says, glad you're mad because uh, you're, the, you're the one. You're the, you're the man. And uh, the conviction of what takes place here. And when he's convicted, when he says, you're the man and here's your divine discipline, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. So this is, this is what we deal with. This is a prophet being sent to a king. All right, over in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. The Lord said to Isaiah, verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Jeshub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. God is involved not only in sending them, but when, where, and what circumstances, every detail, just in case the prophet can't find where the king is. Remember that, you know, if, if the king's been ducking the prophet, kind of hiding, going out of his way to travel from place to place by unusual routes, you know, not answering his uh, cell phone, letting him go to voicemail, or acting like he didn't get an email, or, you know, if how do you hide from a prophet? <laughs> so I love this. Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. I know exactly where he is. All right, he might be ducking you, but you're gonna you're gonna run into him right there. And say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of reason and Aram and the son of uh, Remaliah. All right. Anyway, we notice here is a prophet being sent to a king. And now was Ahaz a good king or a bad king? What I'm trying to point out is that it's not limited to good kings or bad kings. That oftentimes they were sent to bad kings. They were, Elijah was sent to Ahab and Jezebel half the time. Which didn't make them any happy. <laughs> That's why Jezebel was dedicated to having uh, Elijah murdered. And uh, see, some might dispute. Well, Herod isn't a Jew. Herod is a is a Edomian. He's serving the Romans. He's ruling over the, the Galilee as a as a Roman ruler. So your parallel breaks down. I don't think it breaks down at all. Because it didn't matter who the king was. If the king had jurisdiction over Jewish people, God sent prophets to him. He sent Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. He sent uh, Ezekiel. He sent messengers to Cyrus of Persia. He sent, uh, he sent Mordecai and, and Esther into King Ahasuerus. didn't matter if it was, uh, if it was a, a Gentile king there, if he had dominion over Jewish uh, people. I think the pattern is still valid. 
with respect to Old Testament prophets and their orientation to the theocracy. Um, even to the point, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now, how did he do that? Through the prophet, through the agency of Isaiah. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shale or high as heaven. Now, what an opportunity. He's told to name your price, name your miracle. Any sign you want, make it as deep as you want, make it as high as you want. See if you can outdo God because you can't. Nothing is impossible with God. So ask for any sign you want. You can just imagine if the prophet Isaiah came to you and said, ask for a sign and you can make it whatever you want. But Ahaz says, no, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. <laughs> now, Ahaz was not a spiritual guy. Ahaz was not all that wrapped up in obeying the law and whatever. He chooses a kind of an interesting moment to get spiritual all of a sudden. Oh, no, 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 this is a trap. I'm not going to test the Lord. Say, no, it's not a trap. When, you, when God tells you to do it, it's not a trap. God himself does not tempt anyone, nor can he himself be tempted. And so since uh, he won't ask for it, Isaiah says, all right, well, here, I'll give you a sign myself. A virgin's going to conceive and have a child. Since you can't seem to think of something beyond the realm of, of impossibility to ask for, let me tell you something here. It's about a pregnant virgin and her baby. And uh, you see how this comes together? What a, what a blessing. But this is a prophet addressing a king. All right. Chapter 37, again, prophet Isaiah, different king. Chapter 37, Sennacherib is uh, threatening, uh, the Assyrians are threatening Jerusalem. The northern kingdom's already been swept away. The southern kingdom's fearful that they're next. And so uh, the Lord sends Isaiah to Hezekiah. And uh, tremendous encouragement all through this chapter, uh, verses 5 through 7, and then verses 21 through uh, 35. And you can read about it here in Isaiah, or you can go read about it in Second Kings. You can read about it in Second Chronicles. Uh, it's actually recorded a couple of different times. And the, uh, the encouragement that Isaiah gives, I don't want to read this whole chapter, um, if I had to find one key verse, look at verse 21. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent word to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord. This is revelation. This is the language of a prophet who is speaking in terms of the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, declaring the word. And, and don't, be, don't be fearful. And don't, be, uh, don't worry about Assyria. Um, Verse 30, this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and fruit and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant. Anyway, there's a message of encouragement. The message comes with a sign. The sign was a testimony that uh, this was a legitimate prophecy. And uh, the ministry takes place. Notice verse 35. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. See, the Davidic covenant is important to the Lord. The Davidic covenant is absolutely critical to the Lord. Replacement theologians try to erase it and say, oh, there is no Davidic covenant. Church replaces Israel. 
cannot be the cannot be the case. So the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. One night, one angel, 185,000 dead troops. So why are you worried about the battle tomorrow morning? They'll be dead before the battle even starts. <laughs> in any event, there is the pattern for you. There's many more. We'll let it go with that. Uh, John the Baptist's rebuke of Herod is in keeping with that precedent. So when we come back to Mark 6 now, and we read that John had been saying to him, it is not lawful, that John had been saying to him, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We realize that this is consistent with the uh, that precedent. It's in keeping with that precedent, consistent with an Old Testament prophet. To try to take it into the church is absolutely insane. Dispensation of the church application for such activity, however, is not established by New Testament Scripture. We're told, what, what does Scripture command believers to do with respect to the authorities that are over us? What are we commanded to do with respect? We're told to submit. We're told to obey. We're told to render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. You know, the idea of uh, speaking, thus saith the Lord, and you're passing an unjust law. As if somehow we have a commission from God to speak forth as a theocratic prophet to a theocratic country is uh, beyond what the New Testament tells us to do. All right, secondly, again, the details on the execution itself. Point B, now that's all a big side trip under subpoint A. Herod arrested John, but kept him in custody and enjoyed listening to him. Herod arrested John. But kept him in custody and enjoyed listening to him. And I find this interesting. So John's been speaking out. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. In other words, let's just get him off the streets. Let's get him where he stops showing up from my court each morning and rebuking me in front of everybody. Let's put him in prison. And uh, even Josephus records the, the dungeon of Machaerus and, and some of the history behind that particular dungeon in any event. But you'll, you read here in verse 20, and when he, uh, he was righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. It's a novelty. You know, I, I don't know believers that they don't understand the first thing of Scripture, but, but they'll read a Bible occasionally, or they'll listen to a guy on a radio, and they, they find it kind of interesting, kind of entertaining, or maybe a little uh, novel. You know, oh, isn't that quaint? Isn't that cute? Here's some guy actually believes that the mythology of the Bible or whatever else. So even without understanding it, there, there can be an entertainment factor with respect to it. And, and uh, you know, you wonder, well, why do unbelievers hang out in churches so much? Well, what is it? There's got to be better entertainment that's out there. Maybe they just find it kind of amusing or find it interesting. Or, you know, what uh, what sin is the preacher going to preach against now? Or what kind of silly illustrations is he going to use? Or, or things like that. So he finds an amusement factor. Uh, you may encounter this in your own witnessing if you're trying to talk to somebody about Christ. And, and they'll strike up the conversation. They, oh, yeah, it amuses them. Go ahead, yeah, tell me about that crucifixion. Tell me about that... You know, and, and are they really positive? Are they hungry? Do they want to know the truth? Or are you just 
a, a mild diversion for the afternoon as they, they can't believe that you're still holding to that, that primitive belief. Thirdly, Herod feared the spiritual and political consequences of executing John. He just couldn't bring himself to kill him. He feared the spiritual and political consequences of executing John. Spiritual terms we've already seen, that Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. The account in Matthew indicates that there were also some political considerations at work. In Matthew 14:5, we find that there was uh, a bit of a claim in, in terms of the public opinion of John. Matthew 14, 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So there were some political considerations. You've got to keep, if, if, he, if he can't keep the, the natives from growing too restless, then Rome is going to look at him and say, well, what good are you? You know, he's, he's only an effective puppet king for Rome's sake so long as he keeps the, the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and so long as he pays his tribute, and so long as they don't get too rebellious. As far as he keeps Rome, uh, the people quiet, Rome's happy, he can keep his nice cushy position. If they get so rebellious and so uh, uh, into such uproar and Rome uh, and the tax money is, is uh, impacted and, and Rome finally has to squash it, well then... Herod loses his spot. That's what happened to his brother. That's why Pilate now is the governor of, of uh, Judea, uh, and, and there's no longer a, a, uh, a tetrarch in Judea. There originally had been a tetrarch in Judea, a guy named Archelaus, but he, he blew it. And so Rome stepped in there and said, all right, forget it. And they, they put a governor in place, a procurator in place. Um, so some of this here... Uh, becomes manipulative the people realize that a few good a few good riots and some uh, public disorder and you can you know bring down a government uh one of the things Pilate was ready to release christ he says i don't find any guilt in him and he was ready to release him and he says shall i not release him and and then the crowd started threatening Pilate, saying you know we're going to report this to caesar and Pilate, Pilate had his own issues <laughs> he didn't want to lose his job so uh, we'll encounter that when we get closer to the crucifixion. Oh, let's see. I guess rather than come up one at a time, we'll get them both up there. Point D and point E. Herodias schemed to have John put to death, and Salome was her tool for this manipulation. Herodias schemed to have John put to death, and Salome was her tool for this manipulation. You know, it's interesting, the way people will cooperate with each other when it serves their purpose, when they can be tools for one another. And, okay, well, I'll be your tool for this, but what do I get? See, what does Salome get out of this deal? What does Herodias get out of this deal? What does Herod get out of this deal? Salome was also Herod's tool for the entertainment and manipulation of his nobles. Anyway, we see it here. I, I think it's pretty clear, the manipulation. Um, we read in verse, I'll keep it all in Mark. Mark 6:19. Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death, could not do so. Verse 21, a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, 
Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The mother didn't ask for the platter. That was a little addition that uh, the daughter threw in there. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. The terrible thing of the oaths, when a pagan made an oath, a pagan was often more fearful of his false gods than uh, a lot of true believers are in the oaths they take before the living God. I don't know if you ever think about that. You know, when, when if you violate an oath, uh, you know, we shouldn't even make an oath in the first place anyway. Uh, there were a lot of oaths taken in the Old Testament, and, and you're held accountable. And Christ said, don't even make an oath. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no, be walking in your integrity in the Christian way of life. But why do the pagans have more fear of their false gods than their oaths? It's a terrifying thing. Well, when your religion's demonic to begin with, I guess you can understand some demonic fear that goes with that. So he's taken oaths, he's terrified of his oaths, he's terrified of the gods, and he's terrified of his guests. And uh, he has to fulfill because he promised her whatever she named he would give her. And uh, now he's stuck. And he has to. If he, if he goes back on this, if he betrays her, then these nobles know they're dealing with a traitor and they can't trust him. The idea of a princess being a dancer is another thing. And as we're running out of time, you know... Why wasn't Herodias in this room? Did we talk about this last week? Herodias isn't in this room. She has to go out to confer with Herodias, then come back in. Uh, Herodias was not involved in this entertainment. This is this is the Greek after-dinner uh, uh, symposium is what it's called. And you, you didn't do this with your wife in the room. <laughs> this was, the women were dismissed. This was simply a, a man's thing. And this was very Greek, very Roman. Uh, you have your entertainment, you have your meal, and then after the meal you had more entertainment, more wine, more dessert, and, and women. And these dancers are brought in. And they're, they're prostitutes is what they are. And they strip and they dance and they perform activities and, and whatnot uh, right here in the room uh, in, in a big everybody's watching everybody what they're doing kind of thing. And they're, they're, they're prostitutes is what they are. And, and so... For a princess to come in and actually play this part is, is, uh, is, is staggering. It would not happen unless she herself was that manipulative or um, you know because it, it, it destroys Hera's opportunity to marry her now, <laughs> right? He, the only advantage she has for him is for a political marriage. Now what kind of political marriage is he going to be able to forge if he turned this princess into the prostitute? See, Anyway, th there is so much, so many cultural dynamics to this that uh, it really does make for a remarkable story. Let me read two quotations. The first one from Origen, one of the church fathers, calling it the dancing of Herodias even though she didn't do the dancing, her daughter did. <clears throat> Wherefore, John, endued with prophetic boldness, and not terrified at the royal dignity of Herod, nor through fear of death, keeping silence in regard to so flagrant a sin, filled with a divine spirit, said to Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have her, for it is not lawful for thee to have the wife of thy brother. 
For Herod, having laid hold on John, bound him and put him in prison, not daring to slay him outright and to take away the prophetic word from the, from the people. But the wife of uh, the king of Trachonitis, which is a kind of evil opinion and wicked teaching. Now this goes beyond what I was going to illustrate. Um, gave birth to a daughter of the same name, whose movements seemingly harmonious, pleasing Herod, who was fond of matters connected with birthdays, came the cause of there being no longer a prophetic head among the people. No longer a prophetic head among the people. Get it? Origin liked word. He liked plays on words. Yes, there was no longer a prophetic head among the people. Unless, of course, you count that Christ was still living. Anyway, he kind of rails against birthdays, too, for that matter. Origin wasn't big on birthdays. Um, and up to this point, I think that the movements of the people of the Jews, which seemed to be according to the law, were nothing else than the movements of the daughter of Herodias. But the dancing of Herodias was opposed to that holy dancing with which those who have not danced will be reproached when they hear the words, We piped unto you, and you did not dance. And on birthdays, when the lawless word reigns over them, they dance so that their movements please that... It should be world, not word. Some of those uh, before us has observed what is written in Genesis about the birthday of Pharaoh. And he goes on, origin kind of goes into a diatribe here against birthdays. Let me, uh, birthday parties. Great drunken revelry. Um, then he comes back. There was another quote in here I wanted to get, but I put this together a couple weeks back. And I'm not remembering the exact thing I was going to highlight there. All right, let's get the second quote. Uh, Barclay. This is in his uh, Daily Study Bible series on the Gospel of Mark. But when Herod heard about it, he said, This is John whom I had beheaded, and he's filled with his guilt. Let me read through Barclay's commentary. All right. This story has all the simplicity of tremendous drama. First, let us look at the scene. The scene was the castle of Machaerus. Machaerus stood on a lonely ridge surrounded by terrible ravines overlooking the east side of the Dead Sea. It was one of the loneliest and grimmest and most unassailable fortresses in the world. To this day, the dungeons are there, and the traveler can still see the staples and the iron hooks in the wall which John must have been bound. It was in that bleak and desolate fortress that the last act of John's life was played out. Second, let us look at the characters. The marriage tangles of the Herod family are quite incredible, and their interrelations are so complicated that they become almost impossible to work out. When Jesus was born, Herod the Great was king. He was the king who was responsible for the massacre of the children in Bethlehem, Matthew 2. Herod the Great was married many times. Toward the end of his life, he became almost insanely suspicious and murdered member after member of his own family until it became a Jewish saying, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. First, he married Doris, by whom he had a son, Antipater, whom he murdered. Then he married Mariamne, the Hasmonean, by whom he had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. And this, by the way, was the smartest marriage he ever did. Because Mariamne, was, the Hasmonean, was a granddaughter of the, of the, of the Jewish king at that point, when, when Israel set up their own uh, kingdom under the, the Maccabees. And so Mariamne was a granddaughter of the last Maccabean king there. And this was one, uh, a smart, smart wedding. It gave Herod the great legitimacy to the Jewish uh, royal family. Uh, anyway, two sons there, Alexander and Aristobulus. That Aristobulus, by the way, is the father of Herodias, the manipulative mom we're looking at in our story today. Um, 
whom he also murdered, both of them. Herodias, the, the villainess of our present passage, was the daughter of that Aristobulus. Herod the Great then married another Mariamne. This Mariamne was called the Boethusian. By her he had a son called Herod Philip. Herod Philip married Herodias, who was the daughter of his half-brother Aristobulus, and who was therefore his own niece. By Herodias, Herod Philip had a daughter called Salome, who was the girl who danced before Herod of Galilee in our passage. Herod the Great then married Malthake, Malthake, by whom he had two sons, Archelaus and Herod Antipas, who is the Herod of our passage and the ruler of Galilee. Archelaus was the tetrarch of, of Judea uh, that didn't last long, got replaced by Pontius Pilate. Uh, the Herod Philip who married Herodias originally and who was the father of Salome, inherited none of Herod the Great's dominions. He lived as a wealthy private citizen in Rome. Herod Antipas visited him in Rome. There he seduced Herodias and persuaded her to leave her husband and marry him. So note who Herodias was. She was the daughter of his half-brother, Aristobulus, and therefore his niece. And secondly, she was the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, and therefore his sister-in-law. Previously, Herod Antipas had been married to a daughter of the king of the Nabataeans, an Arabian country. She escaped to her father who invaded Herod's territory to, inv to avenge his daughter's honor and heavily defeated Herod. To complete this astounding picture, Herod the Great finally married Cleopatra of Jerusalem, by which he had a son called Philip the Tetrarch. This Philip married Salome, who was at one and the same time the daughter of Herod Philip, his half-brother, the daughter of Herodias, who herself was the daughter of Aristobulus, another of his half-brothers. Salome was therefore at one and the same time his niece and his grandniece. If you put this in the form of a table, it would be easier to follow. See the opposite page. Seldom in history can there have been such a series of matrimonial entanglements as existed in the Herod family. By marrying Herodias, his brother's wife, Herod had broken the Jewish law, Leviticus 18.16, Leviticus 20.21, and had outraged the laws of decency and of morality. So there's a table. I don't know if that one's easier. That one's probably easier to read than the one I put up last week. Um... But you got the different wives. That's five of them. There were ten total, ten wives total that Herod the Great had. But Cleopatra of Jerusalem, Doris, Mariamne, two different Mariamnes, Malthake or Malthake, and uh, the sons and daughters and, and so forth. Because of this adulterous marriage and because of Herod's uh, deliberate seduction of his brother's wife, John had publicly rebuked him. It took courage to rebuke in public an oriental despot who had the power of life and death. And John's courage in rebuking evil wherever he saw it is commemorated in the prayer book collected for St. John the Baptist Day. If you're big on the prayer book. Barclay, by the way, was English in the 18th, 19th century. Um... In spite of John's rebuke, Herod still feared and respected him, for John was so obviously a man of sincerity and of goodness. But with Herodias, it was different. She was implacably hostile to John and determined to eliminate him. She got her chance at Herod's birthday feast, which he was celebrating with his courtiers and his captains. Into that feast, her daughter, Salome, came to dance. Solo dances in those days in such society were disgusting and licentious pantomimes. That a princess in the ro of royal blood should so expose and demean herself is beyond belief because such dances were the art of professional prostitutes. The very fact that she did this is a grim commentary on the character of Salome and of the mother who allowed and encouraged her to do so. But Herod was pleased and Herod offered her any reward and thus Herodias got the chance she uh, had plotted for so long and John, to gratify her spleen, was executed. Anyway, he goes on. And he draws some, uh, some moral applications on some things for his audience in his day. And we'll, we'll let that go for 
this morning. All right, that wraps up episode 35. We have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Yes, he's married to the mother. He would be interested in arranging a marriage for her. Yeah, and if he can arrange a, a great marriage for her to connect her into, uh, you know, another king or another uh, a prominent Roman, for example, then he can advance his cause. That's right. And so by having her in this activity, he's, he's devastating his own chances of, of marrying her off to anybody influential. That's right. Yeah, no, there's no indication of motive on her part at all. Yeah, it's all on Herodias' part. The end of the story, by the way, if you want to hear the end of the story, what happened to... Um, I may not have it up here. Um About his, uh, the end of Herod's days. There's a certain greatness about Herodias in the worldly sense. At the, at the very end of her life, she at least stayed faithful to her husband. Years after this, her Herod sought the title of king. He went to Rome to plead for it. Instead of giving him the title, the emperor banished him to Gaul. That's France. Uh, for having the insolence and the insubordination to ask for such a title. Herodias was told that she need not share this exile, that she might go free. And she proudly answered that where her husband went, she would too. So she uh, she died in France with her husband once uh, Herod was exiled to Gaul. So I guess if you have to find one good thing to say about Herodias, that would be it. She stayed faithful to her second husband. However that goes. All right. Any other questions? We are at the top of the hour. Okay, Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, and for your faithfulness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, next week's episode 36.